Good morning, church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a majestic psalm, a royal psalm, and it is a a psalm of prayer. It is a psalm uh, of prayer. In fact, it is a prayer that through God's righteous king... God's peaceable kingdom may spread to the ends of the earth. And that's how the psalm can be summarized. That this, this psalm is a, a prayer, a prayer that God's righteous, that through God's righteous king, God's peaceable kingdom may spread to the ends of the earth. Let's read the psalm together. Follow along as, as I read Psalm for you, Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountain bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, a righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the seacoast lands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. For him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in cities like the grass of the field. May it endure forever and continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call blessed. Blessed be the Lord. Who alone does wonders and blessed be his name forever. The whole earth filled with glory. Amen. Amen. Prayers are ended. It's the word of the Lord. With a song like this, you 
Solomon is it, it says it's a psalm of Solomon, but what are these, the prayers of David? What's the significance of that? It's all wrapped around this theme of kingship and the extolling of the king. Now, if you have an authorized King James Version, um, yours, if you're reading through this text, um, rather than I read out of the ESV, it says, may he defend the cause. One version puts these things in the past. Other things put these, put these requests in the future. So which is it? Is it a past? The verbs in the here um, are not clear. It could be the past. It could be the future. So what do you do with a, with a, a psalm that is a psalm of the king? I think for most of us. The, the king, okay, that's wonderful things about the king. Is this King Solomon? Well, yeah, okay, we can see that. Is this King David? Well, you can see that. Is this King Jesus? Well, yeah, oh, oh of course, it has to be about Jesus. It's, the, it's in the Bible. That's where we're going to end up, right? We're going to end up at Jesus, yes. What do we do with this? First of all, note that, yes, this is a, a song for worship, but it takes on the form of a prayer. He's praying for the king. And so he's praying for the, ki the king in a particular time, but this is a prayer for a typical king, right? This is a prayer for the king of Israel. It's a prayer of the king. It is a prayer for the king, but it is the prayer for a future king. And when you read this psalm and you look at, at this psalm, it's, it's saying this, there is an eternal king and is a prayer for the eternal king. So, so let, me, let me just press against the way that we tend to think in our daily lives. You know, our prayers reflect a lot of what is in our heart. Right? You think about prayer. Prayer is, you know, there's, there's few things that are as intimate as prayer. Things that open up our hearts. Prayer is an intimate thing. I think that's why when oftentimes in group prayer, those that are new to prayer find it difficult because you're doing what you're expressing your heart to god in front of other people that's a that's that's a that's a pretty risky thing to do this is a prayer it's an expression of the heart what is the content when you think about your prayer life this past week did you pray for the reign of the eternal king See, that's what this psalm is about, is a prayer for the reign of the eternal king, for the king in the, the, the ever-increasing expanse of his kingdom. Now, this, this is going to challenge, really challenge our framework, this, this psalm, because uh, there's, there's really a couple of things in here when we think about where our hearts are in these days. One um, we, we, we come to a, a psalm like this, and it's a measure of prayer, and prayer is really important. Oftentimes when we talk about prayer, we feel guilty. Uh, I don't want you to feel guilty in, in some sense. In another sense, I do want us to take stock of our prayer life. Right? This, this is a prayer for the king. This is a prayer for the king, for 
to the king and for the king, King Jesus, ultimately. Are we, are we praying that the reign of Jesus would extend, like we're going to see in this psalm, around the world in its fullness? Because that's what this prayer is about. What is the content of your, of your prayer? It's usually, if we really are honest, it's more about our kingdom. It's more about our will be done than it is about the will of God being done. We're here, we're being taught in worship. Worship is a discipline. We're being catechized this morning. Um, we're, we're learning, and we're learning how to rightly orient our heart towards God. And this is one of those psalms that rightly orients our, our heart towards God. You know, oftentimes, um, we, we can use this kind of as a test. How do you see the world? Have you had somebody say, well, look what's happening in the world. Jesus must be coming back. Well, wait a minute. Is that the content of this prayer? Is that the content of this prayer? Well, no. What we see is the expanding reign of King Jesus in this prayer. The hopeful expanding reign of King Jesus in this prayer. I think what we're going to end up, too, is, is like this is going to teach us something here. Because, um, again, we, we look at how the influences press around us. What we're going to see is that in this prayer, we become, through prayer, as well as through obedience, we become contributors and not consumers. Contributors and not consumers. The expanse of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is through the church and through his people. And while we're, we're not going to, um, this is not a, a recruiting sermon for um, you to serve in the church. It's, I'm going to just say this. You know, think about how you are advancing the kingdom of God through your service. Right? So there's many ways that we can serve. But are you serving? Or are you looking for programs to do Christianity for you? There's nothing wrong with programs, but we have to be careful how we structure discipleship in the church because oftentimes programs make passive participants, right? And that is not what God's called his people. We're going to see this as we link this to the words of Jesus in the New Testament, right? So we're going to go, for a, uh, go from a prayer for the king to the words of the king in the kingly gospel, and we're going to see that what God has called us to is he's called us actually to be participants, to pray for and to participate in. You see, maybe our prayers are not for the expanse of the kingdom of God because we are passive in it and not participating. So I'm going to allow the Spirit of God to do the work in your heart for you to take stock and say, how am I participating? Am I expecting Christianity to do something for me to make my kingdom and my life better, to expand my kingdom? Or is my kingdom and my life here to contribute to the rule and reign of Jesus and expand the kingdom of Jesus here on earth? Let's look at this particular psalm. Um, we are, there, there's, as, as we probably could do a series and take each one of these points and look at each one of these points in how it's not only here in the Psalms, but to pull the Old Testament and the New Testament together in each one of these points. So we're going to um, move 
through this psalm rather quickly um, because I want to land on, in the, the words and, and I want you to see the connection of this psalm to the words of the king. So quickly we're going to move through this psalm. We see that um, this psalm here is a, is a prayer that God gives his justice to the new king. This is, we see this in verses 1 through 4. So here's the outline of the psalm. Um, then we see three petitions for the king's long life and flourishing justice, verses 5 through 7. Then we see five petitions for the king's worldwide dominion in verses 8 through 11. And then we see six reasons for answering the prayer in verses 12 through 14. Did I say each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself? Six reasons for answering the prayer. And then the final one is, and you guys are like, how long is this sermon? Because <laughs> we have 10 petitions for the king, the land, the people, and nations in verses 15 through 17. And then finally, we have the doxology in verses 18 through 19. Okay, so we're not going to hit every single one of those points. It would, we'd be here all day. Um, so we're going to move through this. We're going to fly over the top of this psalm and make a connection between the first and second coming of the king. So first we see in the first four verses uh, a prayer that God gives justice to his new king. We see the request. Um, look at the request. Oh God, give the king your justice to the royal son. Now we had the royal son referenced in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a reference to the royal son. In fact, um, we see in um, Acts chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, um, and we'll actually, we'll, we'll go there in a little bit, and also referenced in Acts 2. Who is the royal son? So we've got the New Testament telling us who this royal son is. This is Jesus. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Um, so it's not speaking about David or Solomon in particular, but the eternal king, the royal son, King Jesus. May he judge who? Your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. So we see that there, is, there are three petitions for the king's righteous actions there in verses two through four. Um, we see, may he judge the people with righteousness, verse two. And then verse four, may he defend the cause of the poor and his people. And then finally, there in the end of verse four, and crush the oppressor. And so we have this royal son, this prayer for the royal son to come and bring justice to make things right to do more than just the right thing, to crush all opposition to injustice. We see this, this prayer, and, and that, is, that ought to be part of our prayer. God, rain down your justice. How do we do that? Okay, we're gonna go there, right? But we see that this is, the, we see this particular pattern um, for our prayers, um, for God's righteous king, that through his peaceable kingdom, that he might spread his justice to the ends of the earth. And then we see three petitions for the king's long life and flourishing justice. Do you understand the theme here? 
There's a particular theme. Now, um, it's really important that we look hard, that we study hard what justice is in this passage. There's a lot of talk about justice. Look at the three petitions, verses 5 through 7. May they fear you while the sun endures. So the king's long life and flourishing justice. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. The expectation of the, the prayer of this prayer, the, the, the writer of this song, is that the king lives how long? Throughout all generations. As long as the sun exists, as long as the moon exists, throughout all generations, as long as there are inhabitants on the earth, may the king's justice reign, that he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And then notice, in his days, how many days? All days, may the righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. It is a prayer that the king lives forever and that during his reign, justice might flourish. And then, then third, we have five petitions for the king's worldwide dominion. So there's a prayer to give justice to this new king. Then that the king lives what the king lives forever, and under this king, justice flourishes forever. And then five petitions, five times, the psalmist prays for the king's worldwide dominion. What is dominion? What does it mean to have dominion? means rule, control, dominion over all. Look at verses 8 through 11. May we have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. The second petition, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust, right? You can, I, I love the Psalms because like you get a visual picture, Right? May the desert tribes bow down before him. If you live in the desert, the last thing you probably want to do is bow down and lick the dust. You feel like you do that all the time, but to actually physically do that before this king, like it's painting a picture of the utter humiliation of those that oppose the, the king. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. So, so, so you see um, these kings from afar bringing gifts. May how many kings fall down before him? All. May all nations serve him. Five petitions for the king's worldwide dominion. Will, will this, this new king, this new eternal king who brings justice, will there be one who opposes them? him? Will, is it possible for one to oppose? It's impossible all will bow down before him. And then there's here. So, so we have this new king, long life that bring, who brings justice, who dominates the whole world. And then we see six reasons, six reasons for answering the prayer. It's, such a key, it's key to this psalm. Like there, there are some prayers that we pray, and you pray like, well, I, I really hope that God answers. But the psalmist here is saying, 
Okay, God's going to answer this prayer. Here are the reasons. There's six reasons that God answers the prayer. Six reasons for answering the prayer. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls. Now these, these reasons are definitive reasons. He delivers the needy when he calls. Reason two, the poor in him who has no helper. He said, the psalmist is saying, these are the reasons that, the, that this prayer is going to be answered. Look at these that, that you have promised. And the, the assumption of promise is being completed here. He's saying, we, we know the promises that you have made. Here's the reasons that the king is going to come and rule and reign and bring justice to the entire world because there's needy, because of the poor, those who have no helper, the weak and the needy. He saves the life of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. See, this, this new and coming king loves his helpless creation. And he's working to redeem them by bringing his justice. The reason that the psalmist says the king is coming and his dominion will spread throughout the whole world is because he's created people and injustice exists and he loves the people of the earth. The needy, that's you and me. The king is coming to rescue the needy. And then notice after these six reasons, he begins to then extol the king. Long may he live. And in the form of a petition, long may he live. There's this recognition that this is as good as is at the same time a longing for it to be. Long may he live. We won't go into the 10 petitions, but notice that these are petitions for the king now. Uh, for the land, the, there's petitions for people, and there's petitions for nations. May, the, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? That through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And here the psalm ends with the doxology, verses 18 through 19. Blessed be the Lord God, the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole world be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And thus concludes book two of the psalms. But what do you do with a psalm like this? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Take your Bibles and just turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so here in Genesis 1, we have the creation of man and woman. In Genesis 1, it's all together. In Genesis 2, it tells us how exactly that took place. And such as even in the Psalms, you have this repetition. You have something stated and then another statement of it, and it's further explained. So Genesis 1 and 2 take on the, that parallelism. Um, What we see here, God is creating man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then notice the job that God gives to humanity. Now note this too, that that God, as he created, we don't have time to go through Genesis 1 and 2, but he's creating a household here. Genesis 2, um, verse 28, is explained even further. That, and, and he wanted Adam to understand this. He's going to give Adam a job to do. And Adam's going to look around and he's going to go, hey, wait a minute. I see creation. And um, he's named the animals. And then he recognizes, wait a minute, the job you gave me to do, God, I cannot do it alone. And God agrees. It's not good for man to be alone. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What does God do here? He gives to this first household a command to do what? To have dominion over everything, over, to have dominion, to rule over the planet, to care for creation in such a way that creation and humanity flourishes. Some people would look at this, um, this creation mandate, this having dominion as the destruction of creation or the consumption of creation. That's not it at all. It's rather the care of creation for the flourishing of all humanity. And so we ought to look at the land, the earth, the sky, the the sea, and we ought to say, how can we best steward um, all creation in a way that flourishes and gives glory to God? this This is the purpose of humanity. Human flourishing for the glory of God. Not just simply human flourishing. That's humanism. And it doesn't work. It actually leads to not flourishing. But human flourishing for the glory of God is, owes itself to God and is, is why we're here. Why we're here. Now, what did Adam do? Adam said, what program can I find that will help me do this? Is that what he did? No. Adam was not a consumer. He was a contributor. God expected him to go out and do it. Do what I've told you to do. Let's turn to the words of the king. Take, go to the king's gospel, Matthew. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 
verses 16 through the end of the chapter. So we have the creation mandate, and we have what's called the Great Commission. Um, These two are often seen as very separate, but I want you to see how they come together in Psalm 72. You think about Matthew's gospel, and Matthew is, he's Jewish, he is a tax collector. Um, He writes this gospel. Gospels are not chronological, they're not histories, they're not historical narratives, they are unique literature in and of themselves so they're written for a particular purpose so you'll find the events are not necessarily um, in order but this is this is at the last um, it is the what, what's called the great commission now, verses 16 through 20 say this may be familiar to many of you it says now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Okay, so you think you're going to get a second sermon here. I will go quick. But I want you to see the connection. Here we see something very kingly in this passage. Um, We don't have time to go into, but notice that Jesus is on a mountain. Think about all the mountains in Scripture. Last week, it was the mountain of God that went where? Into the sanctuary, right? Geography is really important, especially important in in the Gospels, but important in Scripture. Um, You could do your own study if you wanted to do this around the dinner table, is look at all the events that took place on mountains in the Bible, And ask yourself, what's the significance? When Jesus preached the longest sermon in the Bible, where was it preached? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And what was it about? It was about the kingdom. It was about the kingdom. Is that just happenstance? Does that just happen to be there? Is it coincidence? I say not. These things, are, these things are important. We don't have time to go there, but notice that he is on a mountain. Notice that he is in Galilee. He's in Galilee. What was Galilee? Galilee was this place a combination of Jews and Gentiles lived in Galilee. And so here, here we see this declaration of the king, the exercise of the kings, the terms of the king, the commitment to the king, and the continuance of the king. It is a second sermon. You are getting a two-for-one today. Be blessed. Okay, so here we see the declaration of the king. We call it the king because this is Matthew's gospel. It's the kingly gospel. He's the king because we see in Psalm chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, this reference um, to the king. But keep your finger in Matthew and go over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And look at Acts chapter 13, verses 33. 33 and 34. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to turn, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken to us in this way, I will give you the holy and blessed. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You see the connection. Who's the king? The 
king is Jesus. So here we have in this passage of scripture in Matthew 28, we have the declaration of the king. This is Jesus, and he says um, that he went to the mountain that Jesus directed them, and when they saw who, they did what? They worshiped. This is the eternal king. Jesus is accepting worship from them. He's the king worthy of worship. And then we see the exercise of the king. Look at verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And so the exercise of the king we see is all authority. He has all authority. It is what? It is Trinitarian authority. Trinitarian authority is given. We saw this at his baptism. The Father and the Spirit recognizing the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have Trinitarian authority that's given to Jesus to mediate. It is, it is the authority of heaven given to the, the mediatorial king. So this is the king of heaven who's mediating the power of God. And Jesus does what? He commissions Christians to promote what? Obedience. Go Therefore, that is a command of obedience. You either are going or you are not going. So this is the, the, the power of the king, the commissioning of the king, the mediatorial king, Jesus. He is telling us to go. And what we see is that self-conscious submission to that authority is to spread the word of God to all the world. Now, here's the terms of the king. We see this clear. Make disciples of all nations. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. You see, the terms are total. But oftentimes, what we do is we either treat Christianity at worst, something that is terms to make our life better, and we see a lot of that. Or we simply treat it as a chain letter. Just something to give out. Like, you know, I just have to, I just, if I can get this chain letter and I can get it to you and I can get you to pass it to this person and pass it to this person. You need to go back and you need to look at holiness in the psalm that we looked at last week. In fact, in all the psalms. See, so what, what are the terms of the king? The terms of the king um, is all of life. Jesus Christ was careful in his ministry to uphold the integrity and the relevance of God's word, especially in the Old Testament. We forget that that was Jesus' Bible. Note that, that Jesus came that he might live in terms of God's law, which man had broken. So Jesus upholds the Old Testament law of God. He teaches, Jesus himself teaches the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see this in John chapter 10. We see that, that Jesus kept the law in his daily life. And then he commands his followers to do what? To keep the law too. Teach them what? What, what does the verse say? Everything I have commanded you. Where were those commands out of? 
they were out of the Old Testament, right? So Jesus then, um, he, he kept all of those commands. In fact, um, we see if we were to turn over and look in Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 3, that he even upheld the, the law's civil validity. Like he believed that the law affects every area of life. And he actually, he defines godly love in terms of the law. And the apostles in the New Testament defined it that way. So just like the Old Testament, as we read the New Testament and we see the unity between them, the New Testament promotes a, a Christian view of social duty and involvement. It's not about consuming, it's about contributing. See, the New Testament and the Old Testament together as a unity are concerned with marriage and divorce. And we see this in Matthew 5 and Luke 16, 1 Corinthians 7, in family relations. I will read the passages that I have found just simply so you know that they're there. I don't expect you to take notes. <clears throat> family relations in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and child rearing in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. It also instructs regarding a rich man's duty to the poor in Matthew chapter 25, Luke 16, and 2 Corinthians 8. Employer and employee relationships in Ephesians 6 and Luke 10. Honest wages in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and Luke 10. Free market bar bargaining in, in Matthew chapter 20. Private property rights in Acts chapter 5. Godly citizenship and the proper function of the state. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. The family as the primary agency of welfare. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the proper uses of finances in Matthew chapter 15, the dangers of debt in Romans 13, the morality of investment in Matthew 25, the obligation to leave an inheritance in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and then the, the restraints, the, the um, penalties upon criminals in Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 1, lawsuits in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and so much more. It's urging God's people to live all of life under Christ's authority, not just simple interpersonal spiritual life, not just simply family or church areas of life. The command to observe all things I have commanded you affects every area of life, even as the dominion, the rule and reign of Jesus affects all the world, so his commands affect all areas of life, and we call this holiness. Notice the commitment. So here we see the declaration of the king, the exercise of the king, the terms of the king, right? You want to know the terms of the agreement. If you're going to come under the king, then you need to know the terms. Well, we have a commitment. It's baptism. The word in or ice in, in this passage means coming under a sphere, coming under a sphere, Baptism in and of itself is an act of coming under the lordship of Jesus. In fact, what we see in the movement, the mission movement of the church in Acts, that, that Jesus' as Savior is mentioned twice, two times in Acts. But as many as 92 times he is called Lord. 92 times in that. You see, evangelism is a covenant obligation. It's a covenant obligation to do what? To disciple the nations to teach them all things that Christ has commanded. In the Old Testament, you had circumcision as a sign of the covenant. To wear the jersey in the New Testament is baptism. We do not know any Christian at all in the New Testament who is unbaptized. Right? 
save one thief on the cross. But he's the exception, not the rule. So the commitment to the king is through the waters of baptism. And then we see this eternality of the kingdom, the continuance of the king. And lo, I am with you always. So now, when we look at the creation mandate and the Great Commission, now what do you do with Psalm 72? You pray for the expanding rule and reign of Jesus Christ to the entire world. And see, when you see this prayer in light of that, now you know what to do. You have been, if you're a New Testament believer, you have been commissioned. How does his rule and reign expand? It doesn't expand through passive participants. It expands through ecstatic evangelists who want to see the glory of God invade all of their lives, all of their family, all of their church, all of their community, all of the world. And the expanse of Jesus Christ's kingdom does not come with the sword. It is the peaceable kingdom. It comes with reformation and revival, beginning with prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. Forgive us for our weak words of explanation. Grant us by your spirit an expansive vision for what you are doing in the world. Yes, we are the needy in the psalm. And you are the king who saves us. So Lord, help your needy servants to come under your rule and reign to demonstrate that you are the king to the rest of the world till every knee shall bow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.